It's very easy to fall into the common mindset that everybody else has got and think in terms of consumer. Um, there was a letter that had been posted to the church today that we were looking at, um, which was addressed to the marketing manager. Uh, and we were all trying to work out, well, who is the marketing manager in the church? Um, but in a sense, it, it started off by saying, when we opened it up, how can we help you to get ahead of your competitors? <laughs> Who are we competing against as a church? Is it even a question we should be asking? I think, actually, it shouldn't be. But that's the sort of world we live in, and those are the sort of pressures that are upon us. And there's a real danger that we might fall into just that same trap of trying to make ourselves acceptable to everybody else, to be nice, to be gentle, to be whatever people want us to be, to get them in the doors. That's not really quite how Jesus actually functioned. Just notice some things about this passage that first of all, Jesus was dealing with a very real world. And I want to stress a real world. One of the things that sometimes people have said to me as a ministry, said, well, of course, you don't really live in the real world, do you? I mean, you have a house provided, whereas we have to struggle to buy one. You have a salary, a stipend that's provided, just so you can do your work of preaching and so on. All you have to do is read books. It's prepare services and then once a, once a week actually turn up and do something. You're not in the real world. I have to say when people say that to me, I'm slightly tempted to, to just respond by saying, you know, just gentle things like, um, how many people have you prepared for marriage? How many people have you sat and wept with as they've been bereaved? How many people's bedsides have you sat beside and prayed for healing, how many people's hands have you held as they've entered the next world? Because the real world is one that contains all of those things. It contains sickness. That's what was going on in this passage at the beginning of the passage. Huge numbers of people came to Jesus who were sick with all sorts of problems. Also, there were folk who were being demonised, who were being manipulated by evil powers, who were being controlled by things beyond themselves so that the forces that were around them stopped them being truly free. And there was the leper, the person who suffered from leprosy. A disease that, in those days, if you caught leprosy, the rabbi would read the burial service over you. Because it was as near to a living death as it could possibly be. Because you were cut off from society, because people were so terrified of it. You were cut off from family, you were cut off from friends, you could only live with other lepers, you depended upon what people would provide at a distance by way of food and so on for you. That was the world in which Jesus worked and it was a world too which was awash with a spiritual poverty. Oh, there was lots of religion about of all sorts. There were the pagan religions of Rome which were very strong and were very powerful but were not satisfying and people were looking for something different. It was Judaism, of course, a revelation of God that was real and that was genuine, but which had been overwhelmed by fear, fear of getting things wrong, and so in order that people wouldn't transgress the law, all sorts of other little laws were piled on top of them just to make sure if you kept those, you you wouldn't transgress the big ones. And so people were burdened by a legalism. 
that controlled every part of their lives, that told them how far they could walk on a Sabbath day, that told them how much they could carry on a Sabbath day, no more than the weight of two figs. Bit of a difficult if you're carrying your Bible to church, but anyway. Those sorts of things that limited people were expressions of a spiritual poverty. That's the world that Jesus was living in. That's the world that he was dealing with. It was not a soft place or an easy place. It was not a place of nice people. It was not a place of comfort and quietness, but of sickness, of death, of evil, of confusion. It's not particularly different from today, really, in many ways, is it? Certainly if you take a global perspective, then you see that this is the sort of thing that's going on. Here was God active in a real world, our real world. And to that real world, he brought a real hope. Or at least that's what the leprosy sufferer showed. He didn't have faith, I don't believe, as he came to Jesus at that particular time. But he came to him in some sort of hope that something might happen, that something of what had been going on elsewhere, he'd heard no doubt of the people who come to Jesus and things that happened. Could it possibly be for him? And remember that those who suffered from leprosy were not to come close to other people, but he did, out of hope that there might be something. He talked to Jesus, asked him, begged him, if you are willing. There's clear doubt in that, isn't there? There's clear uncertainty about how Jesus is going to react. Other people would have, would have said, get away from me. Other people threw stones at him. But he desperately needed something and he hoped there might be something in Jesus. And because of that, he was open to Jesus being able to do something. We don't know what was in his mind. He'd heard tales of what Jesus had done, but he knew how people normally treated folk who suffered in the way that he suffered. And that would have introduced all sorts of fears into him. But he was open to letting Jesus respond to him. In effect, it was the hope he had in Jesus that put him in a place where change could actually take place, where he could come up close enough, where he could contact Jesus clearly enough in order that hope might be turned into something else. But notice at this stage, that's all it was. But it was a real hope. Because what was being offered here was a very real Jesus. A very real Jesus. Jesus simply, first of all, note as a man. A human being, a person that you could relate to, that you could talk to, that you could be with. He came to Jesus. That was the the crucial thing. It had to be Jesus. It, It wasn't some other religious figure. It wasn't some other religious ideology. It was not some social action project. It was not some new scheme of healing. It was a person, Jesus. The heart of Christian faith is that it revolves around the person of Jesus Christ in whom we believe God has revealed himself fully and completely. And it's in knowing Jesus, the real Jesus, that life begins to be transformed. That's the the basis of the good news. Because Jesus was there to be found. Notice Jesus was there 
to help. He was there when Simon's mother-in-law was ill, and perhaps much to Simon's amazement, he made her better again. (laughs) Who knows? He was there when the people gathered at sunset to be healed. But he was there in prayer when people looked for him because it was that which was the source of his energy. And it was there that he said, I've got to go elsewhere. Jesus did not limit what he was doing to one place. He doesn't limit it to one time. He's present to be found. And that sufferer from leprosy discovered that and found it an amazing thing. But what he found when he did meet the man Jesus was firstly astonishing compassion, filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. It's an interesting word that's used here because it can be be translated, he was moved with anger. And some people have sort of uh, tried to make out Jesus was a bit upset that this sufferer from leprosy was coming up to him. We see it's very strange that he then says, I'm willing to make you better, and, and does so, which just goes to show that people have some very odd ideas about the Bible at times, but we'll leave that on one side. More importantly, perhaps, about this word, it's, is that it, it's a word that's derived from the Greek word for intestines, or in less polite company, I would use the word guts, all right? In other words, This is a compassion that comes from the very heart, the centre of a person's being. He was moved by what he saw. Jesus is not dispassionate. He does not stand aside from people in their needs and in their sorrows. He's there amongst them, with them. The whole swoop of his life, his life, his death, his resurrection, shows God engaged with the real world of people's humanity and pain and suffering out of an astonishing care. It's difficult to find words that can really express this. Difficult to find words to pile up to to make it what it really is. But it is a gutsy thing at the heart, at the centre of what God is about, is a courageous compassion. Because often people don't deserve it, do they? In fact, you could make out the case that none of us actually deserve compassion in a way. Because all of us are selfish at one time or another. All of us are less than we should be. All of us have failed the test of care. But God shows courage in Jesus Christ in still offering to all humanity that compassion which is at his very centre. And with that compassion, there is a will to confront what is wrong, to take risks in the face of what people in society say, because that's what Jesus was doing as he touched this man. This was firstly social suicide. You didn't touch a sufferer from leprosy. They were outcasts. It was religious suicide because you didn't touch a leprosy sufferer because they were unclean in spiritual terms as far as the religion of the day was concerned. You became an outcast. You didn't touch them because you were terrified you'd get the same wretched illness. These were the things that drove leprosy sufferers apart from everybody else, but Jesus, in compassion, when the man says, if you're willing, you can help me, says, I am willing, and touched him. That's crucial to remember that. He touched him. And this is not just a a sign of, 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 of personal interconnectedness, although it is that, and that's a good thing. 
It's a sign of stepping across the barriers. It's a sign of taking the risks. It's a sign of refusing to go the way that everybody else would go in relationship to this person or this situation. A refusal of the social pressures, a refusal of the religious pressures, a refusal of the media's pressures, if you like, in order to do what was right and what was good. This is compassion with courage. And it was allied finally with a power to actually make a difference. This was not some sort of sentimental approach to people's sickness or illness. Jesus had spent a good evening combating all sorts of things. And you didn't face a leprosy sufferer and think, well, this is a pleasant Sunday afternoon. The disease was a horrible sort of disease that often deformed and disfigured people and left them with a stench of rotting flesh about them, simply because that's often what was happening to their flesh. It was awful. So this was not out of some sentimentalism. This was rather out of a sense that here something must be done. Here a line must be drawn against what degrades and despoils and damages human life. And Jesus had the power and the determination to act, to make sure that that evil that had come upon this man should be dealt with, that this misfortune should be turned away, that this man should be given back life. Because as I'd said earlier on, in those days the burial service was read over a leprosy sufferer because that was what they were reckoned to be. This man was being given life through the power of Jesus Christ. It was there. And Jesus made it available. Just one side issue here. This was a power, though, that came not out of the sound and fury of a preacher standing up, throwing his weight about. This came out of the man who had just spent the night in prayer. It was in that quiet place of the desert, in that solitary place of prayer, that Jesus discovered, as it were, was refreshed in, was renewed in, was linked into the centre of all things that are good and wholesome. God, the Father, with whom he had eternal relations in the power of the Spirit. It was in prayer that that power came to fruition, if you like, that was refilled or renewed or whatever was needed. It was out of Jesus' own continuing engagement in the life of God, in his fullness, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that the power came. A real world with a real hope and a real, real Jesus. Where would all of that put us today then? Well, you and I live in the real world, all right, don't we? We live in a real world that certainly needs some hope, that really needs some hope and that truly needs a real Jesus. On a personal level, can I just simply say to each one of us, have we let Jesus' reality inhabit our reality? Or do we really think that he isn't particularly willing to be concerned about the things that concern us? The concerns of our family, of our children, of our our neighbours and so on, of our town? The fact of the matter is that he is concerned. Look at that passage. Whenever people came, they found him compassionate. Whenever people turned up, they found him willing 
Whenever people came, they found him able. This is, this is a God who is as concerned about a lady who had flu, which is probably what the mother-in-law had, and a man whose life had been corrupted and blighted by an awful illness like leprosy. Both came within the view of God's compassion and love. There is nothing too trivial to take to God. He is concerned. At the same time, we see Jesus truly acting in the big things as well. There is a danger sometimes that when we think of how caring God is for each of us and how he cares for each minor thing, we tend to then think that's all he cares about and we become actually rather self-centred. We, we think we only start praying about our needs, our family, our church, whatever. We forget the wider world. We mustn't do that because here Jesus showed himself to be rooted in ministry to a world of great pain and changing it. Just reflection. What is the real world confronting at the moment and what might we as Christians be praying and thinking about? We're hearing about a clash of cultures, aren't we, at the moment, between Islam and the West. That's how it's being portrayed in many ways. There's a university professor who wrote a book about this some years ago, about the next big clash of cultures would not be East uh, or West and Russia, as it's said, but would now be the West and Islam. Is that what is happening? Because if it is, there are tremendous dangers, aren't there, with all the issues of terrorism in the Middle East and so on. Christians should look at this and ask some questions, hard questions, first of all. The publication of these cartoons and so on, who did that? Is it the West as such... What's the thinking behind the people who have published those cartoons? I'd like to suggest it's certainly not a religious reason in any obvious sense. It's a very secular reason, which is being trumpeted as a freedom of liberty or a liberty of expression. But the Scandinavian countries are some of the most secular countries in Western Europe, aren't they? And France, where the newspapers published the stuff most recently, is notable as a secular society which actually has even prevented Muslim girls from wearing headscarves because it didn't like that. What's going on there? Is there a clash of some sort of Christian culture with a Muslim one? No. It would seem to me what's happening is we're seeing a secular culture, a godless culture, taking on a sort of fundamentalism and opposing anything that does not fit with its fundamental opposition to the things of God. Recently, Christian grouping in this neck of the woods, not exactly in Ipswich, but not too far away, applied to, for government funds for a community project. They were told, you can't have these because you are a religious group. Now, this is despite the fact that government policy actually says religious groups are community groups who do good work. But that was the attitude. You're a religious group, therefore you can't... You can't well, what's the implication? You can't be trusted? You're not acceptable? Isn't that a sort of secular fundamentalism at work again? I think it is. 
And I think we need to be aware of that and to make that plain. Because it's not with people of faith, even if it's a different faith, that the problem is at the moment. It's between secular fundamentalism and Muslim fundamentalism that the problem actually exists. Those who would bomb in the name of God are as fundamentalist as those who refuse to recognise that they can be offensive and disturbing to people in what they write and what they say, but wish to keep doing that nevertheless, even if it results in the death of people through riots and things like that. I'll leave that for you to reflect on and think about. Because it's a big issue. But it's two big issues that we need to seek to apply ourselves, it seems to me today, as well as the smaller things of our neighbours, our schools, our homes. Because we live in times of real significance when hope needs to be rekindled in what Christ can do. Because it's only as we allow the compassion and the power of Jesus to truly be brought to bear on human circumstances that things will change. Come on, look, you know that, don't you? I could go around here and ask you, can you tell me about your experience of God? And your experience would often, I'm sure, come into the heading of God's compassion and God's power. We need to realise that that's what we need to draw on more and more. To let Jesus truly be at the centre of our lives. The real Jesus, may I say. Not just the Jesus of pretty pictures, or the Jesus of nice songs, but the Jesus who reached out to people filthy and beridden by evil. The Jesus who was willing to stand up to the secular and religious authorities and say, I'm sorry, that's not right. The Jesus who was willing to take a bunch of people like the disciples who always seem to get it wrong, but stick with them, because he knew that in ordinary people like that, real people like that, was going to be the hope of the world because it was to those followers that he then gave the task of sharing the good news that would transform the world, that would banish evil, that would confront sin, that would deal with those in need, in compassion and in love. It's the church that by God's astonishing grace has been given this tremendous task. Well, Paul even says it in his letters, we are the body of Christ. As Jesus was in the world, we are enabled to be in the world. This real world, we can bring it real hope. If we are really Jesus, if I could put it like that, in every sense, in every way, and at all times. Tomorrow at work or school or office or home or whatever, you'll meet people who have some needs, one way or another. Can you be Jesus to them? Yes, of course you can. Because firstly, you could be praying for them, like Jesus did. Lifting them before God's throne, as it were, bringing them to a place where the influence of the love and the power of the Spirit can be brought to bear. And maybe you can say things. The Lord will show you, he'll give you opportunity. Or maybe you can express care. Maybe you can be the one who can point them in the direction that will lead them to Christ by simply being someone who shows the way of Christ. That will be as significant for that person as if you were a prime minister or a president 
and we're able to stand up and make decisions that make big issues change. Not many of us are like that, but we can pray for people like that and pray that Christ's love and Christ's will might be upon them and within them because they need it sorely because the burdens on them are great. All of us, then together as God's people, maybe as the church in this country, if we realise more and more of our, our common uh, abilities and common cause in Jesus Christ, will make a difference. I think we're a bit teetering on the edge at the moment. Will we, sl- will we slide as a nation into secular fundamentalism? Or will we allow Christ to rise up so powerfully in our midst that genuine, realistic Christianity of compassion and love and power may come about? It's a question I don't have an answer to yet, but which I believe God is calling us to be those who will side always with Jesus in the way that he is here and is consistently through the gospel. Live the hope that is in Jesus. That's the summary, I guess, of what I wanted to say. So you probably say you should have sat down a long time ago. Well, let me just finish with this. This is a prayer. I'd like us to be quiet and reflect on what we've heard. And then, if you wish, to use this prayer with me. Lord God, I come to you bringing my reality with me. We are real people in a real world. Some of it's not very nice. Some of it's painful. Some of it is full of weariness. That probably covers most of us in one way or another. Please help me to be honest with you because it's only as we are that God can really get on with working in us. Strengthen my hope in Jesus, his compassion and power of goodwill because we need to have that hope in him that he is able, he is willing if we're to draw on his strength. I open my life afresh to you because we need to do that. Give me courage to endure what I must and depth of character out of which hope will genuinely grow. Jesus doesn't promise an easy life. Can I just say that? There was a tendency about, I don't know, 20-odd years ago in the church to try and make, the, make it appear that uh, you became a Christian, everything would be wonderful, everything would be smooth, hunky-dory and all the rest of it. That's not the real world. Never was, never has been. Tell that to the Christian martyrs in the first century, second, third, fourth, fifth, every century, up until the most recent one, the 20th, when more Christians were martyred than in all the other centuries before. Though Jesus doesn't offer an easy life. He offers a full life, a genuine life, a real life, a life that matters and a life that can change things and can matter for other people. That's a life worth living. And sometimes the pains of that life actually make that life stronger. Character grows out of endurance. This is Romans chapter 5, by the way, if you want to look it up. That's where that comes from. And out of that hope comes genuine hope because we've seen God at work even when it's tough. Even when it's tough. And so please pour your love into my heart each day by the power of your Holy Spirit because it's the energy of Jesus that we need. It's his love, his reality that we most certainly need. Sisters and brothers, we live in a world truly in need of Jesus, but truly in need of people who know the real 
Jesus. Whose lives are sold out to him, whose lives are taken up with him, whose lives have been moved by him and changed by him and will continue to be moved and changed by him. Because it's the real Jesus who will make the difference. Will we live the hope that is in Jesus? Let's be still and quiet for a moment, shall we? Before a prayer, that if you wish, join in with me. If in your hearts, in your minds, you've sensed a stirring from God about any particular thing that relates to allowing Jesus' life in us in the world, then hold that before him. Be willing to do what he wishes and then share in this prayer. And if that's not happened, don't worry. You've no need to pray the prayer. Simply focus on Christ. but a prayer we may use together. Lord God, I come to you bringing my reality with me. Some of it is not very nice. Some of it is painful. Some of it is full of weariness. Please help me to be honest with you. Strengthen my hope in Jesus, his compassion and power of goodwill. I open my life afresh to you. Give me courage to endure what I must and depth of character out of which hope will genuinely grow. Please pour your love into my heart each day by the power of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.